All right, what a blessing to be able to share this time with all of you. You know, our series is called A Time to Choose, and today I want to explore the idea of the power of persistence, choosing to be persistent. We're going to go back in time, look at an amazing, remarkable moment. We call it this uh, first miracle of Jesus and the, the kind of situation that created it. And there's a lot to learn here. And we're going to have some fun together, but we're going to learn together and I hope grow together. So even now, Lord Jesus, I just pray for your blessing over your word as we share it together. Help us to be open, receptive, help us to drop our guard and to have a listening ear. That's our prayer in Jesus name. Hey, let's just jump right in. John 2 verse 1. It says, On the third day there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. That would be Mary. And Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. Cana was a village town in Galilee. You can see where it was located not far from Nazareth, where Jesus was from. And we are told that he was invited to a wedding with his disciples. Remember, Jesus is just starting his public ministry. And weddings in Jesus's day, in the time of Mary, uh, ancient times, would have been in Israel uh, a special time of celebration for families and community. It, well, it still is. But in their day, it had a, it had a more extensive <laughs> way of being expressed. Oftentimes, weddings were five to seven day affairs. It was a welcomed time of festivity, if, if you think of it this way, in an era where hard work was a way of life, just, just sometimes to survive. A vast majority of people, we need to remember this, they had no luxury items or uh, entertainment options. I mean, we have, boy, <laughs> just think about that for a moment. What a contrast. Today, we are here living in America, at least, just overwhelmed. And that's the best way I can say it. We are overwhelmed with entertainment options. Technology and progress has literally brought the, the world to our fingertips. I mean, when you think about it, it's the good and bad of it, actually. And I think we can make a case that there is a lot of good, and I definitely think we can make the case that there's a lot of bad. Whew. Are you not entertained? It's just, well, it's not just a line from one of the best movies of all time. It's, it's also, I think, a description of our time. It really is. We are probably more entertained than ever, but I'm not sure it's making us more happy. I actually think it's killing us. I really do. It's, it's, I think it's part of the reason why people are experiencing so much unhappiness, anxiety, um, identity confusion. People are taking their lives. They're destroying their lives. I have to say it in unprecedented fashion. For we are in some ways as a world amusing ourselves to death. And I do think it could be argued that the sheer abundance of our entertainment options in every conceivable form, again, the byproduct of unimaginable technological advancements and a prosperous and decadent culture has served to dilute some of the 
the simple enjoyment that was experienced by previous less enlightened, less sophisticated, less urban, less modern generations. But <laughs> that's, well, that's a discussion for another time. I mean, this is the world we're living in and we have to be honest about that. And I'm a part of it too. I mean, this is a culture that I share and engage in. It's part of the reality that we are all experiencing on a daily basis. And I'm going to talk a little bit more about that actually in the coming weeks. I think, uh, I'm going to talk about choosing to pull away to rest and recover, but that's a little bit down the road here. I want to go back right now to the wedding at Cana, the place where Jesus would work his first recorded miracle. Again, in New Testament times, there was an expectation that went along with hosting a wedding event. This is an important little piece, kind of the backdrop here. It was almost transactional. The idea being that those participating were giving up something to be there again. It was a longer celebration and they were also bringing gifts and the hosts in turn were, well, they were expected to provide to the best of their ability, a festive atmosphere for the week. This meant food and, and drink. And by the way, <laughs> the drink of choice was wine. And uh, some of you will know, not all of you, uh, I'm not presuming you would, but many of you are aware that just over the years, I've shared this, that I'm a non-drinker. I, it goes, it really goes all the way back to a decision I made when I was a, 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 a teenager. When I first started to follow Jesus, it was something I just felt like I wanted to give up and, and honor him within my life. And I've been doing it now for decades. And so I guess I'll, I'm, I'm, what, <laughs> I'm what some people might call a teetotaler. And it's always funny because I, you know, I thought a teetotaler was connected to the idea of being you know, a tea drinker. So teetotaler. I don't know why. That's just what I always thought when I heard the phrase, when I heard somebody describe, describe not drinking as being a teetotaler. And it wasn't until I actually watched a PBS documentary. I think it was 2011. Ken Burns, a fantastic uh, documentary uh, creator, just, just a phenomenal storyteller, Ken Burns. But he, he had this uh, series that he called Prohibition. And it was then that I learned for the first time that tea in teetotaler wasn't for tea as, you know, like a drink, but it was tea for representing total abstinence. And anyway, I, <laughs> I say that because even though I don't uh, drink wine or alcohol, I'm surrounded by people who do. I do need to point that out. I mean, almost everyone I know well enjoys you know, good wine in, in moderation. My mother, uh, for a number of years was a restaurateur. She actually owned, uh, a wine shop. And, uh, I mean, hey, look, we live here in the San Francisco and San Francisco Bay area on the edge of wine country, Napa Valley. It's legendary. It's known for its, uh, amazing wine. It's actually a place where people come from all over the world, a destination spot. And so, you know, it's always been an interesting part of the discussion. When we talk about the first miracle of Jesus, because we know he's going to end up turning water into wine. And, you know, I remember reading something that, uh, 
a commentator named Craig Keener wrote in his first volume of the Gospel of John. He said this, just to give it a little backdrop, put it in a little perspective. He said, wine was not merely unfermented grape juice, as some popular modern North American apologists for abstinence have contended. Before hermetic sealing and refrigeration, it was, it was difficult to prevent some fermentation and impossible to do so over a long period of time. Nor was wine drunk only to purify the water, as some have claimed, because the water was inconsistent and sometimes it wasn't actually healthy. At the same time, the alcoholic content of wine was not artificially increased through distillation. So it had actually less alcohol content. That's an important thing to remember. Today, the average alcohol content for most non-fortified wine is around 12%. And people in the ancient world always mixed water with the wine served with the meals. Often, Keener writes, two to four parts water for every part wine. Undiluted wine was actually considered dangerous and drunkenness was viewed unfavorably. So wine, though not grape juice, was in Jesus's day, we got to say it, far more watered down. And I think if you were running out of wine, <laughs> like one option, well, one option would have been, hey, let's, let's just add some more water. And obvi <laughs> you know, obviously, they could only do that for so long before it got real bad and uh, before people really started to notice, wow, this, this, is, this is awful wine. I mean, it's just like, it's like drinking colored water. So, you know, that's the backdrop for what we're going to look at. I know you, some of you were saying, wow, you took us on quite the journey. I know I did, but just kind of want to put it into a context. Let's go to verse three. Let's watch what happened. It's, it's, it's a fantastic exchange. So much for us to learn from it. Verse three, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Again, in their day, running out of wine at a wedding would have been a problem. Uh, a stigma that could attach itself to the host for a lifetime. I mean, it was just bad form. And Jesus's mother, Mary, who must have speculated, well, let's put it this way. She was probably aware, and many people have actually speculated that she was a friend, most likely of the groom's family. She feels compelled to bring this up to Jesus. <laughs> and hoping, I think, that he would solve the problem. I think it's pretty clear. We're going to see it. You know, he'll know what to do. And so I want to, I want to say this from the very beginning. She chose to welcome him into her dilemma, their dilemma, with an expectation. And that's really good for you and me. Because there are, there are times when the Lord is going to be open to us, inviting him into a, a dilemma even with our expectations, even if the Lord, <laughs> well, we'll see, watch, as we watch this, we might think, oh, this, this won't matter to God. Uh, and let's just watch with a kind of amusement as we see how Mary and Jesus communicate with one another. But clearly what was interpreted by Jesus in this situation was when Mary said, hey, they've run out of wine. What Jesus heard I think pretty clearly was, so you need to do something to help. <laughs> it was like, you need to do something because they run out of wine. And that explains Jesus's response. Verse four, and Jesus said to her, woman, what, what, what? <laughs> okay, what does that have to do with me? And then the phrase, my hour has not yet come. Woman, 
which we should not not interpret as being a disrespectful or harsh response to Mary, but we also we also probably need to acknowledge that Jesus used it with intention. He didn't say mother. He didn't say Mary. He said woman. And I, I do, I do think that it, it is a reminder. She, he was gently reminding her that he had started his ministry. He had called his disciples. He was making it clear to her that a shift had occurred in their relationship and that things were not going to be the same. They weren't, they weren't going to be the, what, what they had been. It was a, it was a, a change. But even more, I hear Jesus saying to her, I, I'm not a performer. My power is for a purpose and, and for a time. And listen, my hour has not yet come. And what does he mean by that phrase? My hour has not yet come. The hour, the hour of my revealing, the hour of, of my ah, a messianic announcement. The phrase that he would use to uh, refer to and, and at different times connect to his purpose. I mean, for example, in John's gospel, it occurs on a number of occasions. Jesus referring to his hour. It, it occurs here in chapter 2. It occurs in chapter 7, 8, 12, 13, and 17. And sometimes Jesus, when he refers to his hour, he's talking about his public ministry, like in this situation. Sometimes he's referring to, majority of the time, he's referring to the cross and his death. My hour has not yet come. The hour of being delivered um, into the hands of sinful men. And then other times he refers to his hour as, his hour as, as his resurrection and his coming glory. And it's worth noting that the first recorded reference to his hour is made to his mother and his last recorded reference is made in John 17 to his heavenly father. So the first time to his earthly mother and the second time to his heaven, I mean, the last time to his heavenly father. Verse five, his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. <laughs> you would think that Jesus's response to Mary that some have called a gentle rebuff, a modest rebuke would have been enough to deter her, but she is a woman with a lot of chutzpah. We might call it holy chutzpah. <laughs> She's undaunted. She turns to the servants and says, mm -hmm, whatever he says, do it. Whatever, whatever he tells you to do, do it. It's almost like she says to him, well, it's almost like she said, well, you're saying there's a chance. <laughs> Right. I mean, technically Jesus didn't say no. So she chose to press in. And before the night is over, there will be a miracle provision that, that I'm going to have us look at in depth next week. There's just a lot for us here though. There really is something about choosing to press into God, even when it seems that the answer is no. And it just really walks the, that fine line between faith and presumption. You know, when it comes to seeking Jesus or seeking after God, some of us, and I include myself, might be too quick to take no for an answer. I think sometimes we are too quick to take no for an answer. 
there is such a thing as importunity. There is such a thing as the power of persistence. In fact, Jesus gives a parable on it. There's a, and I'm just going to refer to it really quickly. I'm going to read it through the message translation, which is a really a different way of reading scripture. But in Luke 18, Jesus talked about the story of the persistent widow. Just listen to this and connect to what we, we've been talking about here. Jesus told them a story showing that it was necessary for them to pray consistently and never quit. He said there was once a judge in some city who never gave God a thought and cared nothing for the people. A widow in that city kept after him. My rights are being violated. Protect me. He never gave her the time of day, Jesus says. But after this went on and on, he said to himself, I care nothing what God thinks, even less what people think. But because this widow won't quit badgering me, I'd better do something and see that she gets justice. Otherwise, I'm just going to end up beaten black and blue by her pounding. And then the master said, do you hear what the judge? <laughs> and then the master said, that's Jesus. Do you hear what the judge, corrupt as he is, is saying? So what makes you think God won't step in and work justice for his chosen people who cry, who continue to cry out for help? Won't he stick up for them? I assure you, he will. He will not drag his feet. But how much of that kind of persistent faith will a son of man find on the earth when he returns? Persistent faith. Jesus was using a story of an unjust judge responding to a persistent widow as a point of contrast, saying, if this is true for people who, who aren't even really good people, how much more would a, will a good God respond to you? Have more faith. And so I want to put this out there. Let's not choose to take no for an answer. Let's not quit too soon. Part of Mary's example is that she is not taking, I know, no for an answer. <laughs> she's, she's, she's choosing to, to press in. And I, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I want us to sit a, a little bit more with, with her request and, and ponder what it can teach us. And one of the things that really stands out to me here is that we should be willing to make, uh, even what might seem frivolous requests. It's true that running out of wine on the part of the host at a wedding ceremony in Jesus's day might've been uh, considered slight, well, slightly scandalous, maybe certainly embarrassing, but honestly, in the greater, in the greater scheme of things, it, it hardly could be categorized as important. So was it really necessary or even appropriate to bring this to Jesus? I mean, think about it. Was it? I mean, if we're honest, it just, it just doesn't seem that spiritual. It really doesn't. I mean, what do you, can you help us here? We got a problem. We've run out of wine and it's going to be embarrassing, but it was important to Mary. And, and listen to me. And because it was important to her, it, it became important to Jesus. Uh, initially, he, he felt like, well, this, this is not something that I want to be involved in. But, but she wanted him to help. And he responded. 
And if I could just press this a little bit further, if you think about it in the end, this is not just about persistence on the part of Mary. This is about relationship, isn't it? It's about relationship. I really want us to consider that, reflect on that for a moment. Jesus responded out of the relational context even more than because of her persistence. As important as her persistence was, it was the relationship that allowed for it. And, and it's a reminder then that you and I, as those of us who've opened up our heart to Jesus, who've accepted his name over our lives, and we've chosen to be baptized, we've chosen to embrace his name in a public confession as his sons and daughters, that we have chosen to make our identity our primary identity as, you know, as his sons and as his daughters. That's the context we live our lives out of. That's our first point of identity by faith in Christ. When we do that, it's, it, we are being reminded here. I, I truly believe this, that we can bring even things that maybe may seem more frivolous, maybe less spiritual, I know, because of the relationship that we have. In the same way that Mary felt free to press Jesus and was uh, adventurous <laughs> in that regard, you know, pushing, pushing further than maybe she should have, but hey, what do you have to lose? And in the same way, you and I, are invited because of our relationship with him to do the same. Do you see that? Do you see how meaningful that is? Do you see how beautiful that is? Do we see and appreciate the opportunity that is before us? The opportunity to press, the opportunity to ask the Lord to help us, in, even when maybe initially it may seem as if it, it's really not a big thing. We are sons and daughters of the King. And again, if you've never opened up your heart to Jesus, I just, and, and, and asked him to be your savior and Lord, the King of your life and reframed your full identity in him to the best of your abilities with the help of his spirit at work in your life. I really want to encourage you to do that. I mean, don't stop. This is your time. If you've gotten this far and you've been listening to me, come on, what do you have to lose? This, this comes with privileges. It does. It's not just it's not just um, a casual thing to be in relationship with Jesus. It's the greatest thing to love the God and to know him in Christ. What a gift. And so to be part of the family of Jesus, to be part of the body of Christ is something that uh, is of incalculable worth. As Jesus said, it is true wealth that will not be taken from us. We live in such a fragile world where kingdoms rise and kingdoms fall. Economies can fly high and then sink in a day's time. We get hit with, with things that none of us could have seen coming like a pandemic. In these places, it's best to put our trust in something that is solid, unshakable, the unshakable kingdom of God.
and the solid rock of Jesus. Best choice we can ever make. And it comes with relational opportunities. And, it, and I want to just add one more thing to that, if I can. Not only does it mean that you and I, on the basis of a relationship, have the opportunity to be persistent with the Lord and to ask Him to help us, even in areas sometimes that don't seem like they're earth-shattering, that we're able to have this daily kind of relationship, this, I'm not going to call it casual, but I am going to call it intimate. There, there is something about Jesus being our friend, true, but I never want to forget that he's also my Lord and my King and my Savior. So you walk that beautiful, intimate relationship with the King of glory. It's such a privilege to have access to the Lord. And then I think we need to remember this as well. <laughs> it's okay to ask the Lord to move on behalf of our friends. I want you to really think about this for a moment. Mary's request that will result in the first recorded miracle of Jesus's ministry was not for herself as much as it really was on behalf of someone for whom she cared. Like it was for her friends. And, and in the end, think about this, the provision that Jesus is going to bring again, that we're going to explore more in depth next week, that provision was not really connected to the faith of the host. <laughs> it wasn't. It, it, we, don't even, we're not, we don't even know if, if and when they were even told about it. Their blessing came not because of their faith, but because of Mary's. That's, that's something. It was her intercession that opened up the possibility. And sometimes I think we can... You know, we, we, maybe we feel okay about praying for people we care for, certainly family and close friends and, and others whom we've built an acquaintance with. We might feel, it could be a coworker, I, that we, we feel we've, we know and is a friend of ours. But sometimes I think that we're, we're okay praying for them in relation to big things, like when when they're in a, in a desperate place or something really bad's happened in their life or they're battling a, a devastating illness or a loss or real deep pain or dark depression or, you know, what the things that we feel are, these are the big things. And we go, oh, I, 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 I'm okay. I can pray for that. But maybe sometimes we hold back praying a blessing on those we love or care for or meet as you know, in, in, the, in the circles of our relationships, because we feel like, well, it might be a bit superficial and, you know, I don't know if I want to pray for that because it, you know, compared to the deeper and more profound, uh, significant issues of life, it just seems kind of like frivolous. And, and I mean, part of what this first miracle reminds us is that it's okay for us to listen press and bless, press and bless because we care. Mary pressed Jesus because she cared. And as she pressed for the blessing of her friend, she found that Jesus eventually <laughs> responded. And, and, you know, when we do that, because in some, in some, well, I'll just say we, 
we, we care. When we care, the Lord invites us to press and bless. And because, hear me out, because in some mysterious and undeserved way, he, because we care, he cares. Because we care, he cares. And that is the gift of relationship that we have in Christ. So with that in mind, you know, I'm going to come back around and close this out. I'll close this out in prayer. I just feel led to do that after the song. So let's go ahead and share this together. I'll come back around and then we'll finish our time. All right, here we go.
Jesus said, you have not because you ask not. I think sometimes we give up too soon. I know I have. I think there's some things that the Lord wants us to press into that maybe we have, uh, we have been reluctant to do so. And remember, sometimes it doesn't have to be the biggest thing in the world for us to press and bless. <laughs> no. Sometimes the Lord will answer not so much because he directly is responding to a specific need, but because he's responding to the fact that we care and because we care, he cares. Think about that. Uh, he cares because we care. And that too is an invitation we get to choose to embrace, right? So Lord, I just pray as we go our separate ways that we would walk as a people of promise understanding the significance of what it means to have a relationship with you and that we would live as your as your beloved sons and daughters kids of the king who've been given this tremendous access to an intimate relationship with you you are our king but you're also our friend and we're so thankful for that and i just pray that you be with us all lord in the days and weeks and months ahead that's my prayer in Jesus' name. May you all go in his blessing and in his goodness. Grace to you in Jesus' name.